You're listening to KCBP Community Radio on 95.5 FM and streaming on kcbpradio.org. This is Women of the Valley, where we examine the issues, stories, organizations, and people important to women in our community. We're your hosts, Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch. My name is Leah Hassett, and I'll be your host for today. Our guests are from Haven Women's Center of Stanislaw, whose mission is to advocate for those impacted by domestic and sexual abuse or exploitation and to work to end gender-based violence. On today's show, we will be talking about sexual abuse, domestic violence, and human trafficking, and this content may be difficult for some listeners. Today we're welcoming guests from Haven Women's Center of Stanislaw. We're talking to May, Maibau, and Jeanette today. Welcome to you three. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we'll start with you, May. Um, can you tell our listeners about the problem of domestic abuse, sexual assault, and human trafficking in Stanislaw County? Sure. So one of the first things I want to acknowledge is that many of your listeners already know what the problem is because they've lived through it. We know statistically when you are talking about being an adult or child survivor of domestic or sexual abuse, that's a very large percentage of our population. Uh, Overall, one in three women and one in six men can be survivors of abuse. And so when you talk about a county that's over half a million people, there are a lot of people listening to this who know exactly what the problem is because they have lived through it or they are living through it or they're trying to help a support person in their life. And and one of the other things I want to point out is there are some people who feel very distant from the issues of domestic or sexual abuse. Uh, and, and when we talk about human trafficking, we talk about it in the context of sexual exploitation, which is, which is part of sexual abuse, that they may feel distanced from it because they don't think that um, anyone they know has been impacted. And I really want people to recognize that somewhere in their life, they have encountered someone who has experienced abuse. And that that was someone who was probably an important person to them. So I'm hoping by the end of this conversation, uh, people who are listening might have a better ability to recognize when people in their lives are experiencing abuse and have some tools on how they can reach out to them and help them um, find a path for change. Thank you for that. I think it's really great that that you mentioned that. Um, I hadn't thought about it like like that. Can you tell us about Haven's Women's Center of Stanislaw? Sure. So Haven is a private 501c3 nonprofit organization that was founded in uh, 1977 by Pat Paul and Yvonne Allen, um, the domestic violence side of it. We are actually three different organizations that are merged into one over the years. So the uh, Stanislaw Women's Refuge Center, which was a battered women's shelter and crisis line, was founded in 1977. And the Stanislaw Rape Task Force was the Rape Crisis Center founded in 1971 by Wanda Hurley. And in uh, 1980, the Women's Center, which is where that part of our name comes from, was founded in uh, was founded to address the needs of women who were re-entering the workplace after 
um, long marriages. So there, there was there were a lot of divorces that were happening, and women who were trying to re-enter the workplace without um, without job skills, marketable job skills. So there was a lot of of money in grants to help them. So that's where the Women's Center came from. So over the years, those three organizations merged into one. So we've been a part of this community addressing the issues of um, violence for over 40 years. So we originally, uh, when, when people think of Haven, they tend to think of the domestic violence side and what it was at that time when we opened, um, specifically a battered women's shelter and a crisis line. And today we are much more than that. We provide services to all survivors, regardless of gender or gender identity, uh, immigration status, sexual orientation. So we, we can uh, uh, house men or people who identify male or gender fluid, non-binary, it doesn't matter. We can, we can uh, provide services, including shelter. People can come to us with their children. Sometimes people think they can't bring children, and they can. We have pet enclosures now, so people can bring their pets if it's not safe to leave them at home. And we uh, have made some changes to where there's increased privacy at our shelter, so it's one family, one room. You don't have to share space. So that's, that's how the shelter looks a little different from what it used to. And the shelter is about 8% of the clients that we see. Uh, last year, we served 2,500 survivors of domestic and sexual abuse in Stanislaw County. And like I said, about 8% of those were in our shelter. Most of our clients are non-residential. We provide services at seven, soon to be eight locations uh, throughout the county. Four of those are under our control, and three of those are collaborative partnerships, which include uh, Stanislaus State, which we'll be talking about a little bit, our Family Justice Center, which we'll be talking about a little bit, and um, a collaboration with the county working with survivors who are uh, on welfare-to-work activities and have domestic violence as a barrier to being able to complete those activities. So if you are uh, receiving those benefits and you're listening to this and you're like, I can get domestic violence services. Talk with your worker about it. That has to be a referral from your worker into uh, the Haven part of BHS program services. So, um, and also about 30% of our staff at this point have some type of prevention in what they do. And Jeanette's going to talk a little more about our prevention program. So people think of us as only intervention providing services to survivors. And while that's a huge part of what we do, it's only half our mission statement. The other half of our mission statement is working to end gender-based violence, and that's where our prevention programs come in. And, and like I said, about 30% of our staff at this point have some type of prevention focus in the work that they do. So Haven today is is a lot of things um, beyond what what most people tend to think of. Wow, that that is amazing. So just to recap, so it's it sounds like there are prevention programs that actually reach out to the community and train young women, young men, or, or, or all segments of the population to... Jeanette, you want to talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yes. Um, the biggest part of prevention, not only, you know, people think of awareness, like October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and we have our Walk a Mile, so you could look mm -hmm. on YouTube, Haven Walk a Mile, to see what that's about. So a lot of people think of those events that are outreach that make those issues more visible. But really, prevention is more about like challenging beliefs, um, the gender socialization, just working with like a peer-to-peer, -peer, even in, in young people, like mm -hmm. in some of our youth services into high school, because what's really not out there is what's a healthy relationship. And along with the gender socialization, it's very much constructed in power and control. 
and people just don't get that information anywhere. And so it's exciting now. I've been at Haven 21 years and it's exciting now for me to see like so many more schools at a high school level having passion to teach. And some of the prevention are the models that are like community mobilization. There's a team called HEART which is Healthy and uh, Responsible Adolescent Troop. I know I messed up that name, but anyway, um, they are very advancedly trained. And so it started out in Enox, but now mm. we have other models at Downey and other places. Wow. Um, that actually, I think, especially at that age, they're going to listen to a peer a lot more than like maybe an adult. And so that's the thing that's different in a lot of the prevention now is this community mobilization approach where peers are trained and then they go into their actual classrooms. Um, so we do all kinds of different training. And then part of the prevention also is a lot of like speaking and training for many agencies. So I go in and talk with nurses sometimes or like district attorneys or do a lot of training for a wide variety because domestic violence and sexual assault show up in every aspect. Like May was saying, you know, well, I don't know if that really touches me. If you work with someone or you supervise someone or you live next to someone, it affects you. You don't often know that. So right. um, so just going out to a wide variety and just talking to people about what it looks like. How do you identify? How do you not blame the victim? You know, just things to look for. So there's a lot of education that's needed, and that comes in the form of prevention in a lot of places. Wow. I am so glad to know that's there. As a mother of teenagers, I just... I'm just so grateful. Yes. Now, and you were talking about the welfare to work uh, recipients, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the economic situation that might be those who have experienced domestic violence in the home and and have had uh, their household breakup. What what they might be facing and what those challenges are. Well, a lot, and I will ask all, all of us to you know respond. Uh, what that looks like for an individual for individual families will be different. So in some families, uh, because I, I, I think behind your question might be an assumption that the the person who is causing harm is the person who um, is providing financially for the household mm -hmm. so that when if when the person who is being harmed tries to leave, then they're losing finances. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that is the case. And, mm -hmm. and that's where programs um, like temporary for needy families can come in. Other times, there is the, the, the person who's being harmed is also the primary provider, and, and that financial abuse is part of what's happening. And then there's also um, when you have a situation where there's sexual exploitation happening within the relationship. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, a lot of our clients, a lot of our trafficking clients come to us uh, not self-identifying as trafficking clients or exploited clients. They come to us as domestic violence victims or sexual assault victims. And on the domestic violence side, um, financial abuse um, looks like, you know, they're struggling to pay the rent. And then the um, abusive partner um, tells the victim, you know, we can't pay our rent today. So why don't you, you know, use your body to, you know, get money so that we can pay our rent. Or it'll look like, um, um, you know, we need food or we need, you know, just their basic needs met. And so then um, that the abusive partner will, um, will sexually exploit their, um, you know, their partner to, to go out there and, you know, walk on the tracks or sell themselves or, you know, have sex with other people for money, for, you know, just their basic needs. Yeah. Wow. So 
Sorry, thank you. I would add that, you know, I do a lot of groups. It's really the connection between addiction and trauma. So I go into most of the treatment centers in Stanislaus County and do support groups. Um, and a lot of um, people are in the same way sexually exploited in a way to fix so they don't get sick. So partner is dope sick. And in some ways, and, and they don't even think that that's any kind of trafficking, but trafficking is, it doesn't have to be money. It could be a sexual act for goods of anything. It could be a Big Mac, right? So, um, so you see that a lot in the substance abusing population also. You know, and I think the last thing I would add in is, is in the gaslighting aspect of the dynamics of a violent relationship, uh, it can feel, the victim can feel like, um, uh, they're being given contradicting messages. So for example, someone might be going through school because they're trying to get a, a, a degree to get a better job or to be able to advance their education. And um, the abusive partner might tell them, you know, you never do anything to contribute. I have to do everything. So they're trying to do this to better themselves. But then that can lead to independence that then feels threatening for the abuser. So the abuser will then sabotage. And uh, we, we have seen so many people, and, and especially through welfare to work, as they are starting to gain skills and become job ready, that abuse escalates in ways that specifically sabotage the person being able to complete their degree or getting them fired. And, and those tactics work. Yeah. There are a lot of specific uh, protections now around domestic violence in the workplace because of how well those tactics work wow. and cause people to lose their jobs or be asked to leave school. Wow. Can you tell us just a little bit what gaslighting means for those? I'm not sure what I, if okay, I so understand it's really what like that term a mind is. game. So there's a lot of, that's the mental abuse part. So the mental manipulation. So it's like, um, leave and then block the door. Or like May said, you can go to school. Like I'll let you go to school, mm -hmm. but then they don't bring the car home or mm -hmm. man, I worked on my paper for seven hours and it's gone. It just disappeared. And the victim often internalizes that as I'm too stressed out to be in school when they might not even know there's parts taken out of the car. So many things can happen or just stalk them. Like again, if they're stalking them at work, many, there are protections, but that's what they know works is intimidating the other students on the campus or at the, so it's a mixed message all the time. Um, saying one thing and doing another that causes them to it, victims say, I just feel crazy because they tell me do this. And so I try to, you know, manage the violence by doing what they say, but I never ever can do that because it's always going to be something else. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's really tricky, but they just feel really overwhelmed and guilty because they feel like I'm trying to be a good partner. I'm trying to do this and they give unrealistic expectations and then constantly change the rules. Yeah, gaslighting is really an intentional tactic designed to make the victim question her sanity. Okay. And as part of the rest of the abuse, you start the, the batterer starts to create the reality. And the victim starts to internalize that. And 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 it's and it's an it's a very intentional method of doing things where where the person will do something and then later on say well I never said that I never did that mm -hmm. and and does that so much that the victim starts to question well am I really remembering it correctly mm -hmm. and you and you you start to you start to mistrust your own ability to assess mm -hmm. the world around you and what's happening and and when that works in conjunction with isolation now you don't have anyone else's perspective but the abusers. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah. so it's, it's very intentional. Yeah. And, and I want to add that the term gaslighting comes from an abuser turning on the stove at nighttime before bed and then telling his victim that you forgot to turn the stove off. And so, you know, she questioned herself asking, I did leave the stove on because the gas is on. Mm-hmm. And then she goes and turns it off. And then he turns it on. Say, you did not go and turn off the stove. Well, I thought I did. So then she goes and turns it off. And this happens every night. So that's where the term gaslighting comes from. And a lot of clients, they don't use the term gaslighting. Sure. We in this field use the term gaslighting. But a lot of my clients have said crazy making. Mm. Like they make me go crazy. Or, or my abuser makes me go crazy. Yeah. And and like a lot of abuse, nothing that we've described is illegal, Right. So, you know, if you think about this, and this is one of the, one of the most damaging, I think, tactics that's used in violent relationships, because you, you come out of it and you can't trust anything. Mm -hmm. You can't trust anything in your perception of, of the world. You have to relearn how to trust yourself, but none of that is criminal behavior. So that's another thing around the dynamics of abuse and things for people to understand is that we think of violence as physical injury, um, and, and things that cross the line into criminal behavior. Right. And, and while that absolutely is there, there's so much of it that doesn't cross that line. Uh, and those things work together um, to create the harm to the family. So it would be in the category of emotional abuse? Or, uh, I mean, it seems like it would. Is there as also... Is Intimidation, that financial, uh-huh. like so many pieces of mm-hmm. that. All right. So I will tell you that every man, woman, or child, a victim of, they will say that the emotional abuse is as bad or worse than the physical every time. Our systems, and I worked at child welfare for Mm -hmm. five years, don't even meet anything that's not a visible evidence. So a lot of times people will say, you know, um, bruises heal, cuts heal, what, but this emotional scars in the heart is what has the most scar tissue. So the emotional abuse by far is what people talk about. Like when I'm working with survivors in groups about this, the most devastating. Um, and that's the part that, again, it feels crazy making mm-hmm. because if you people can see bruises or black eyes and even victims will think I'm not a victim of domestic violence because my partner's never hit me. So there's a lot to that. So, mm-hmm. and I also want to add at this point, there could be people who are listening who are starting to feel really uncomfortable because this sounds a lot like what they're going through and they've never thought of themselves as experiencing violence and what do I do now? And this is really kind of hard to listen to. And I want you to know that that's a very normal reaction. And I would encourage you to call our crisis line, which is 209-577-5980. Again, that's 209-577-5980. And we have a trained staff who can talk with you 24 hours a day. Doesn't matter. You can just say, hey, I was listening to this radio show and I'm not sure what's coming up for me and how to process all this. And they can help you with that. And, and you are more than welcome to come to our services. We have support group. We have individual counseling. There's no fee for any of it. It's all um, confidential within the bounds of our mandated reporting stuff, which we'll tell you about. So you are welcome to access our services, either in person or on the phone, to help you work through some of these feelings and figure out um, if you want to take some next steps, what they might look like. And if you don't want to take any next steps, just kind of be in that space with you. I would add to that also, a lot of people have misconceptions and they'll think, even the word success, people think that means getting a restraining order or leaving. 
people listening, if you start, that is not at all the discussion. We meet people where they are. So when people come in, it doesn't necessarily, people think a lot of times when they get domestic violence services that it means leaving. That's mm-hmm. the most dangerous thing a person could do. And personally, I myself has never, have never suggested someone leave in 21 years. Like, because we know that 75% of victims who die, die after they leave. Wow. So I've worked with people that have been in my group two or three years, haven't even thought of leaving. And then I've worked with people that the first time I meet them, they're trying to escape. So everything is client led. And so if a person was just wanting to know more in light of what we've been sharing, make a decision not to decide. Just go in and just talk with someone just to to have a sounding board about, you know, what is it that I'm dealing with? And that is a lot, the comfort level with that is much better than people thinking I need to be, in order for me to go to Haven, I need to be ready to make some decision or leave my relationship. Yeah. And, and I want to echo what Jeanette said. Um, our philosophy to this, you know, to working with, um, victims of domestic violence, sexual assault and, and human trafficking is that we meet them where they are. Our services are survival led, survivor centered. So a client comes in and we will not tell the client what to do. We will ask the client, you know, what, what do you need from us today? And they will tell us and then we will give them their options. So if someone comes in and says, I'm being abused, I don't know where to go. I, this is what's happening to me. Um, my abuser just attacked me today and um, I called law enforcement and they didn't want to take a report. Then we would sit down and talk to them, help them process everything. And of course, we validate them too. And then we would say, you know, do you want us, you know, it seems like you're having challenges making a police report. Do you want to make a police report? Do you want us to advocate for you to make a police report? And, and then, um, you know, if they bring up, well, I'm thinking about a restraining order, then we would say, okay, these are the different options of you going, you know, you can do it yourself. You can, you know, meet with an advocate to help you with a restraining order, or, you know, you can get an attorney. So we talk to them about their options. Options, and then we let them choose what it is that they want to do. And if they just want to come in and just talk to us, and they, then they say, I'm now going to go back to my abuser, that is completely fine as well. Because we know that they know their situation, and they are the expert in their life and in their situation. And so we won't force them to make a decision that they're uncomfortable with or that they don't want to do. One of the th- one of the other things I would like to point out, because um, I'm always thinking of people who are listening might have resources that can help us. So, one of the questions we often get is what what, and one of the questions that you had asked is what languages are we able to provide services mm-hmm. in? So, all of our direct service programs have staff that speak Spanish. Uh, given the the, I think Spanish is thirty percent thirty percent of the population primary language is Spanish, um, or is it thirteen? I'm not sure of the staff. <laughs> There's a large population in Stanislaus County where Spanish is their primary language. So we made that a a priority in ensuring that all of our direct service programs have staff who speak Spanish and can provide that that, um, service directly. In addition, we have a pool of interpreters, and my bow actually coordinates that program, who can provide language access in 11 different languages? Yeah, so we have um, we have interpreters from the community. Uh, we have the languages of Assyrian, Arabic, Pashto, Dari, Farsi, Vietnamese, Mandarin, French, Hmong, and ASL. 
Um, I think I've counted 10. I think I'm missing one. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, this is so that we can provide services to those whose primary language is not English because Stanislaw County is very diverse. And, you know, right now we have, we are having increased, um, immigration from, you know, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be able to provide, um, services to anyone walking in the door whose primary language is not English. And, uh, with that, we are always looking for more languages and so, and more folks to help us with language access so if anyone is interested you know they can definitely contact our agency and we can direct you in the right direction um, to get that started but um, it is very important for us to provide services in a client's primary language it doesn't mean that if they come in and they can have conversational English you know a conversational it doesn't mean that if they come in and they can have com- basic conversations with us in English, then, you know, we just talk with them in, e- in English mm-hmm. because, um, so English isn't my first language. And I know that sometimes I can articulate something better in my primary language than in English. And so, you know, if I'm speaking with someone who speaks Hmong and I switch back and forth because sometimes I articulate better in this way and sometimes I articulate better in English. So, um, so we want to provide that space for clients to be able to express their feelings, tell us what exactly is going on in the language that they're comfortable in. So we ask, so, so if, if someone calls on the crisis line, or walks into one of our drop-in locations that and, and um, speaks a language that we don't have someone there at that moment. We use the AT&T language line just to be able to do initial communication and try and, and get contact information, do immediate safety planning, figure out what they need like right now to be safe, and then get follow-up contact information so that we can arrange uh, one of our interpreters on a, on a scheduled basis to have more detailed contact later. Is AT&T uh, language line a translation service? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then we'll have some links um, on our webpage, um, our KCBP webpage, um, of the uh, crisis line and the, um, the general phone number of uh, Haven Women's Center and also their website where you can get a lot of information about getting services and volunteering maybe as an interpreter. Actually, our interpreters are paid. So because we understand that having a language skill is very valuable. And so we want to compensate them. So interpreters are paid. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, then maybe um, job opportunities can be found. Yes. Um, And then one thing to uh, say about our interpreters is Mm -hmm. that they are on an on-call basis. So they could get onto our list, but it could be months before we call them because we won't call them unless we have a client who needs the language access. I see. You're listening to KCBP Community Radio 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org. And we're talking with May Maibau and Jeanette from Haven Women's Center of Stanislaw. All right. So what I'm hearing is if somebody wants to reach out to Haven and talk about an issue they're having, they might be eligible for counseling. 
one-on-one yes. or group counseling. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like? Uh, is there specific groups um, or so for so, certain age groups or for for certain genders? So we have uh, we have different groups at different locations. I mean, as I said, we we have our our administrative office in mm-hmm. Modesto. We have an office in Turlock. We uh, are at the Family Justice Center, which is where where my vow is stationed. Mm-hmm. We have an advocate who is on site at Stan State. So if you're a student at Stan State, we have an advocate there that can um, speak with you around domestic violence or sexual assault issues. So so these different locations will have different services available. So I would really say call for more detailed information. In general, the types of groups that we have are groups that focus on issues of domestic violence, groups that focus on issues of sexual assault, uh, groups that are specific for teenagers who are um, who have experienced abuse either in their primary home or in their uh, their own relationships or survivors of sexual abuse, and also for youth age uh, five to twelve who are, who have um, lived in homes with violence or our survivor are survivors of sexual abuse. Uh, some of those groups are in Spanish. Um, some of those groups have an art focus. What are some things I'm missing? Again, each process of where you go is going to be kind of different because we have at Packet, the Mm -hmm. Community Services Agency, that one is a specific referral to behavioral health services, but those groups count as well for the work. So there's different ways to get into a group or counseling. Um, But if people walk into the main office, they can just do an intake and we have counseling there also. Um, It's a little bit different at Family Justice Center. Each one kind of has their own referral process and what's offered. Um, just and so I think that's the best thing is just being specific about what location in Turlock it's at 301 Star Avenue and so um, each place has kind of just don't, its own orientation or different processes. Okay. So what what is uh, can you tell us what's happening um, on the CSU campus and the collaboration that that you have with that organization? Well, you know, a federal the Title IX federal mandate came with, with with a focus. It's actually an umbrella of discrimination in general that was for equity and education, and underneath that, there's the component of the. Uh, making there's so much in rape culture and i really want to plug if you haven't seen hunting ground on netflix it's just a wonderful um documentary that shows what was happening so much and actually a lot of institutions were actually fined because rapes weren't being reported it's already really underreported anyway but Mm -hmm. many campuses i mean it was difficult with we want tuition and we want um you know people coming to the college but um Sexual assault really does, we don't want that to be an issue on our campus. So it was kind of swept under the rug a lot. And you could see a whole bunch of, like, if you were to study different campuses, Mm -hmm. we're talking all across the country. And so they really made a mandate that each school has to have a Title IX deputy director. That's a person who investigates sexual assaults. But we are really ahead of the curve with um, Stanislaus State because we, in 2014, way before um, other colleges had an advocate there, they contracted Uh So that is being mandated now, and so other places are kind of coming on board. But since 2014, they have contracted for a full-time advocate housed in the science building over there, um, and that's the intervention piece. So a person could come in if there's domestic violence, sexual assault. That's students and staff. 
And so they can come in and have a lot of the types of services that we have, like safety planning and ongoing peer counseling and things like that. And then also in 2014, funded through the California Department of Public Health was um, for an educator to be out there. And they did a model called Close to Home which is pretty well known in community mobilization, like in prevention in this work. Um, and basically that project in 2014, our educators started as the same kind of teaching students and students really being passionate about the issues. And it really is more like student-led than actually uh -huh. Haven staff-led. And um, they became a club on campus and changed their name to Stand Together. So it's S-T-A-N, Together. Um, and they're just a group of students that are really passionate and do everything from, you know, um, presentations in the classroom, events on the quad, uh, a lot of really fun things, some artistic things. They did tie-dye, all kinds of different things, um, just to bring awareness with the goal of ending rape culture. Wow. A, a leading cause of a person not finishing school is sexual assault. And we know that most of it isn't reported, and we know that alcohol is the biggest date rape drug. People always think of GHP and GHB and other kinds of things. And um, a lot of people just think, oh, we just partied too much. We were both just drunk. And, and there's just huge numbers of uh, sexual assault on campus. And so people are just saying enough. It's so great with the Me Too movement and all the movements that we see. People are saying, we're tired of this. We're tired of like being sexually harassed in the everywhere in the workplace on a college campus and so we are not going to tolerate it and you see that momentum i think a lot is driven by social media to say we want our campus to be safe and this is what we're going to do about it and so it's neat to see the energy and the commitment on the level of the students mm -hmm. and our goal is is that we organically grow that it will exist long after we began just because they take that on and them already making it a club kind of speaks to that. So we do a lot of resident advisor training so they know how to deal with situations that may happen in dorms. A lot of training with staff um, and just kind of ongoing since 2014. Wow. And I'm just interested as I try to picture this energized group of students, is it male and female students yes, together? Yes. It's, it is it really important. Um, it's been more difficult, especially in the beginning, to get male students, but we like to do a lot of like facilitation or leading together, modeling equality. Mm -hmm. um, and we also just the nature of sexual assault and domestic violence, you know, if you're dealing with people, a lot of times low opinion of women are not listening. It's good to have um, like to other genders like speaking yeah. to um, or make more of an impact than if a person not really listening. So we ha we've had some really great, in fact, one of the guys that was in Stand Together <laughs> has now been hired at our agency. Oh. Yes, Ethan. So, yeah, he, but he's still very involved with Stand Together. Uh -huh. And we have a couple other staff now, too, that have been either Heart um, in high school have, are now working with us or Stand Together. So it's great. So yeah. we could get a link for Stand Together um, yes. on our webpage as well yes. for listeners. Wow, I did not know how much Haven was doing, and this is so wonderful to hear. Let's see, what, moving to a different topic, what can friends or relatives of somebody who may be experiencing domestic abuse, sex trafficking, or um, sexual assault, what can we do if somebody were to tell us about that problem? So first off, we have a brand new support group that has started that is specifically for 
support people of a sexual assault survivor. Wow. So if you um, have someone in your life that you care about, whether it's a family member, a friend who uh, has experienced sexual assault and is working through that trauma, we have a group for you as the support person in their life. So that group is Monday nights at our main office uh, here in Modesto, 618 13th Street from 3.30 to 5.30. And if you follow us on Facebook, there's there's information on that there. Uh, so, so that's specific to that. In, in terms of having someone in your life that you think is experiencing abuse, the first thing I would say is be willing to be uncomfortable because we often um, don't know what to say, don't know if it's really happening, don't want someone to get offended. So we just, you know, think, well, I think something odd is going on, mm-hmm. but I don't really want to. So uh, you have to be willing to take a little bit of risk and be willing to step into a little bit of space that might be uncomfortable. And you can do that in a very caring way. You can say, you know, this may not apply to you at all, but these are some things I've seen and I've noticed. And it makes me think that you might be in a situation where someone's hurting you. So I just want you to know if that's what's happening, I really want to be whatever kind of support you need. Um, And if none of this applies to you and I've got that totally wrong, awesome, you're safe. And I'm really great to know that. And I'm really great, really grateful to know that. Uh, but just know that I'm, I'm there if, if there is something that, that you, you need to talk about. Uh, if someone discloses to you that, uh, that they're experiencing abuse, I would say the very, very, very first thing out of your mouth should always be, thank you for trusting me with that. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, I want you to think about if you've ever gone to the doctor and you know they're going to question you about something and you're dreading whatever that thing is, whether it's, you know, whatever bad habit you have that, you know, your doctor is going to be, you know, harping on you about. And sometimes you don't go, right? Like you put off going to the doctor because you know they're going to tell you what you already know. You know, well, it's the same thing if you're experiencing abuse. There, there isn't there isn't anything that someone is going to say to a victim that, that that person hasn't said to themselves already. And and they're really afraid of that. So for them to even tell you. They spent a lot of time thinking about that and really had to work up to that and are really concerned about what your response is going to be. And they may have had some really bad responses from other people before. So it's even harder for them to reach out to you. So the very first thing, if you say, wow, thank you for trusting me with that, you're immediately going to see their stress decrease a little bit. The other reason for saying that is unless you happened to think that something might be going on, chances are you're going to be taken off guard right? And it's not going to be something you expected. And when we are, when we are um, faced with something from a friend that they're going through some type of trauma, and, and we had no idea, we tend to react with things like, Oh, my God, why didn't you tell me? Oh, my God. I mean, there's that, right? Just because of our own kind of shock and trying to process what we've just heard. And that will cause harm. So saying, Thank you for telling me does two things. One is it relieves the stress for the for the person who's talking to you. And second, it gives you a minute to just kind of regroup, think about what you just heard, and get into the mindset of what does this person that I care about need me to be right now? So that takes us to the second thing that you should say, which is, what do you need from me? Not, here's what I think you should do, mm-hmm. but what do you need from me? And then just listen. Just listen. And the third thing might be, you know, I've heard of this place called Haven. Do you want to give them a call? They might be able to help you with some of these things that you just talked about that you need that I can't do for you, but they might be able to help you with. Hmm. So those are the three big things I would say. 
I, I want to add that, you know, to validate their experience, because many times they might have been on this journey of questioning themselves, of questioning their partner's behavior, of people telling them that they're just making a big deal out of nothing. So really validate their experience um, and also come from a place of non-judgment, you know, like wow, you've been married to this person for 20 years. Like, why are you still with this person? Mm -hmm. And asking why questions really, um, it can really put the blame on the other person, the victim. And so, you know, I just want to say validate and come from a place of non-judgment and letting them know, don't push them to do anything. And um, just let them know that, hey, I'm here for you if you ever need me. And, you know, just let me know. Let me know what it is that you need. I'm here for you. I would also add one huge thing I think of is just blame. Victims blame themselves a lot because the perpetrator says, it's your fault if it rains on Tuesday. <laughs> and my experience in working with collaborations is even well-trained people will say things like, well, if you don't care about you, look what you're doing to your kids. A lot of statements. It's so huge because Victims, especially in child welfare, are held responsible. So offenders aren't held accountable, but the victim gets failure to protect, child endangerment. In every place that you turn, the victim is taking the blame for the behavior of the abuser. So when a person says, um, you know, a loving person who doesn't know better, maybe sometimes it's like a parent who says, if you go back, don't call me. Mm -hmm. Or I'm sick of your drama. Or things that... Um, it's not only shuts them down, but it's so much judgment. And so I think that, again, like May said, they victims blame themselves more than anyone. If I just try harder, if I get dinner done, if I do this or don't that do that, then it will change things. Um, and so they already do so much victim blaming. And so when people come back with so many things, when a person hesitates because I have a pet or I have all my things in my home, well, it's just stuff. And I always think if somebody told you you had 10 minutes to go home right. and pack, it wouldn't just be stuff then. Right. So there's a lot of really valid reasons why people stay. Some people stay to protect the kids. Sure. It, within CPS, people will know in certain circumstances they have threatened to take custody or they have the financial means and an attorney and I don't. Or for whatever reason, them staying there is protective. And so a lot of times the judgment always with domestic violence is leave. And there's so many important reasons why um, a victim stays, you know, culturally, religious, like so many reasons. And so they get blame everywhere they go. And so just being really careful not to victim blame, not to, you know, tell them why haven't you left? Or if somebody put hands on me, I'd do this or the statements that they get. If there was violence in the home and there was children in the home and, your, and a friend came and told you about that problem... Calling Haven would still be the first step. Let's see. Are you thinking of like little kids? Or like I guess a, I'm okay, thinking so of if a, if a teenager or a child was the one that was being abused, like my thought would be to just call CPS right away. But could Haven also help people do that and make that call? Or 
Um, sort that out. Well, and, and with, with CPS, I mean, there, there are some, some cross-referral processes. Okay, okay. Uh, so if, if CPS is involved with a case that has domestic violence, mm-hmm. they're going to re- recommend that the client come to us. Okay. It's up to the client whether they do, but, but they'll recommend them to come to us. Uh-huh. Uh, I would also say that it is, in, 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 our, in our experience, someone from CPS might say different, but in our experience, it is unlikely for you to have a situation where a child is being abused and there isn't some dynamic of intimate partner violence also happening uh-huh. between between the, the adults in the home. Okay. We work very close to a CPS. Okay. They actually even drive youth to, like, kids that are in placement to mm-hmm. our youth groups. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with, the majority that are in my groups have open CPS cases. Mm-hmm. And so we do understand there's a lot of overlap in a lot of systems. And so I think a lot of times I think the hardest thing for loved ones is like if it's the parent of a teenager that sees abuse. Sure. And they will come and say, you got to help me. My daughter's 16 and like she's getting harmed or whatever. Um, will you call her? Uh-huh. And that's the thing is that it may not be safe. And I don't know. Even when, like, I work at other places, um, helpers would say, oh, this person needs shelter. They need to go, right? And it's not at all the plan that that the the victim wants. And so we don't really just do cold calls out to people if somebody has a concern about, you know, their teen or someone. Mm -hmm. Um, We would definitely listen and support and and let them know, well, they could, you know, feel free to share some of our literature brochures with your teen Mm -hmm. um, and encourage them to, like, reach out to us. But that's one of the most you know, difficult is the parents that are saying, I'm really scared. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, they'll a lot of times say, will you call them or will you help them? And that's really d- tricky. But it sounds like anybody can call Haven's 24 mm-hmm. uh, hour line to d- discuss what to do next. If they do find out or suspect that somebody's being abused of, um, in any situation of any age. Sure. Okay. I think my favorite book, like if a, I always tell people whether they're going to be working with people or if you're sitting here listening to this, my very favorite book, and I read a lot, is When Love Goes Wrong by Ann Jones and Susan Schechter. Because it literally does not direct you. It tells you every single thing, like don't do couples counseling if there's domestic violence. But after it talks about the pros and cons and the danger of that, there's even a section that says if you do. <laughs> Because uh-huh. people are still going to do it, like, or go to their church or wherever they... So that is just my favorite book, um, When Love Goes Wrong. There's another piece, of, I'm glad you mentioned that book. There's another piece of that book that is is very valuable. It's the best representation I've seen of this. One of the questions that we would hear a lot from uh, survivors is, how do I know that this person has really changed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I know? And this book actually gives really concrete examples in answering that question. So it's, it is a great, I mean, if you do nothing else, but you flip to the back of it, you know, it's got some really great um, answers to that question. And I think it's even available on Kindle now, you know, you can even like download it on your phone. Wow. You guys are amazing. <laughs> I just want to say that. Um, what can we do to help Haven as an organization? So what do we need? We, uh, we can always use volunteers. If you are interested in volunteering for our organization, uh, go on our website and there's an area where it talks about how to be a volunteer. If you are interested in working for us, volunteering is actually the best way to get in the door because when a position 
comes open, we always look to our volunteers first because they have already gone through a very extensive training. Uh, our our uh, staff and volunteers qualify as peer counselors under the California Evidence Code, and they have to go through a very long training that we put on three times a year. So if we're doing an external hire, there's a delay in that person being able to start. So, you know, a volunteer always has a much better chance of getting hired over someone external. So think about that if you are considering a career path uh, with Haven. Uh, we also... Uh, are always interested in donations. Um, mm -hmm. If you follow our Facebook page, if you're like, I really want to do something tangible, like what's an immediate need that I might be able to help with, follow our Facebook page uh, because we will put posts on there. Another big one is an app called Safe Night. Okay. And uh, I think if you go to our website, there's information on Safe Night. That is, is an app that we use to uh, fund when clients have to be put up in a hotel because our shelter's full. So our shelter is six rooms and then we're full. So that's six families and then we're full in a county of half a million people. Wow. Uh, so we use hotels as a uh, backup that mm -hmm. if someone needs to be safe, we put them in a hotel until space opens up on our shelter. So that um, we've just had a, a full year of really using the hotel program pretty consistent, consistently. And it's about $12,000 to pay for that. So this what the Safe Night app does is if we have someone that we are putting in a hotel because our shelter is full, we can send out on an alert on the Safe Night app. And if you have downloaded it and you've selected Haven as one of the beneficiaries, then you'll get an alert. And when you get that alert, you know that is a real person that we are putting in a hotel and we need to fund a certain amount of nights. And when we meet, when, when enough money has been collected from Safe Night, then it stops. So, so if you really like, I really want to be able to do a tangible thing, the Safe Night app is a great way to do that. And it is a huge need that our agency has. So Safe Night is a great way to do it. Um, if you shop on Amazon, if you're familiar with Amazon Smile, or when you, when you um, go to the Amazon Smile page and do your shopping, it's no extra money for you, but you can select Haven as your beneficiary and Amazon will give us like some proceeds. So that's another great way to give. Doing a direct donation on our website. You can go to our website, you can set up a monthly amount, whatever amount um, is comfortable for you, you can make it recurring. And that's a nice little steady stream that we have coming in that helps us be flexible with, mm -hmm. with needs as they come up. Um, Save Mart does that too. Save Mart, like they have an app and you can pick Haven as a nonprofit and it's a percentage also, just like with the Amazon type of... And Walk a Mile in Her Shoes, which took place recently where we went out and asked a few participants about their experience. And we're going to have some of that, um, those little interviews, um, to close out the show. Wonderful. Um, and if is that going to happen every year? It happens, yes. It happens every April for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And our, kick, and our Walk a Mile season actually starts with our Kick Up Your Heels uh, event in October, which is held every October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And that's more of a traditional like hors d'oeuvre type fundraiser. Mm -hmm. We are going to be um, recognizing some people for some work that they've done for Haven this year. So if you're interested, if you like being able to, you know, go to those types of events and have you know, a little bit of wine, a little bit of hors d'oeuvre, some, you know, great silent auction items. We usually do raffles where you have gift certificates to be able to do custom shoes online. 
uh, like Birds of Prey, those types of those types of companies, you can get like a, a, a certificate to, to build a custom shoe. So oh. we usually have a selection of those that we raffle off. Oh. Keep an eye on our website. Um, we will have information posted there, and that will be happening in October. All right. Can we say raffle? Yeah, we okay. do it. Yeah, oh, good. Yeah, we well, do all the good. stuff with the state. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can have a raffle. It was always one that corrects me. It's all legal and legit. Yes. Our okay, raffle yes. is. Say drunk. Say drunk. Oh, I'm so glad you all came in and talked to us today. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to add? Um, there's been so much said. I I want to talk a little bit about the human trafficking piece. Please um, do. So Haven has always historically provided services to trafficking victims. For us, it just never looked that way. Um, because like I said earlier, um, a lot of our clients come to us as domestic violence and sexual assault victims. And how that looks like is their pimp is their intimate partner. Their pimp is their husband, is their boyfriend. They're having intimate relationships with them. So, you know, they will call our crisis line or come into shelter because their boyfriend has assaulted them. They won't identify as a trafficking victim. Or they were on the tracks, they were working, and they were sexually assaulted by a John or a purchaser. So then they come to us as a sexual assault victim. So it's not, I was out there, I was being trafficked and I was assaulted. It's, I went on a date and this man, my boyfriend, whoever assaulted me. So, um, Haven, you know, we received a grant about two years ago and now we are documenting, um, yeah, human trafficking victims. Um, under this grant, we do provide services for both labor and sex trafficking. However, um, the majority of our clients are sex trafficking victims. And I just wanted to give, you know, some numbers from April 1st, 2017 to March 31st, 2018. We have provided services to 42 trafficking victims. And of those 42, 40 identified as sex trafficking and two were labor and sex trafficking and they range from the age of 16 to 55. Um, and so services that we provide for trafficking victims are, you know, our temporary emergency housing, uh, we do have the 24-hour crisis line. Um, we would go out to the hospital to respond for, you know, a sexual assault or domestic violence. We have, of course, case management, peer counseling. We help with restraining orders like domestic violence restraining orders or civil harassment restraining orders. Um, we provide law enforcement and social service advocacy and accompaniment because when it comes to trafficking, there comes the part of law enforcement involved mm -hmm. as well. Um, we also provide, um, you know, food and clothing, transportation. Um, and one piece that we have never had before was transitional housing for, you know, human trafficking victims. And with transitional housing, the um, survivor has to be in a place where they are no longer in immediate crisis mm -hmm. to be able to go into our house, uh, our transitional housing program. But we are the ones to assess mm -hmm. that. So, um, and then another big piece that we do is community outreach and education. So um, we go out into the community to talk about what, you know, human trafficking is, um, you know, how our services, Haven's services, and um, 
And then we also um, collaborate with community partners in the, you know, 209 Freedom Project, which is Stanislaus's um, uh, human trafficking task force um, and, you know, other community partners. Thank you so much for that. Maybe say one last thing. If you have an agency that you feel like, wow, our staff needs more training, um, just give us a call on the prevention program manager because we can do a lot of training in organizations as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. On all of these subjects. Mm -hmm. All right. And tailor it to who the audience is. Okay. Yes. All right. And look to uh, the KCBP website for any links that you need to this wonderful organization. Thank you so much for coming in Thank today. You. Thank you for having yeah. us. All right. Thanks again. I'd like to thank our guests today, May, My Bow, and Jeanette from Haven Women's Center of Stanislaw. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, I'm here talking to Jeanette Schmidt. Jeanette, what made you come out today to walk a mile in her shoes? Actually, I'm here walking for a, a I guess, colleague, I would say a friend of mine. His yeah. wife actually runs the, is in charge of it. Kelly Bordona is in charge. I work with her husband, so we joined his team. And what does it mean to you today to be able to come out here and, and do this for the team? Um, women. It's great, actually. I think everybody's been touched by somebody who's been a victim of some type of violence, rape, domestic violence, whatever. So it's nice to support them and let them know people care. Great. Good to talk to you today. This is Shelly Tucker. Shelly, good to meet you. Good and to meet you. Would you like to tell us why you're out here today at this wonderful event? I'm out here to support my colleague, Chris Bordona. He and his wife, Kelly. Kelly is one of the people who set this program up and everything. And I'm out here to support them. Great. And is there anything you want to say about the cause for women's rights? To this is a tremendous cause. For both men and women, no one should be afraid. No one should have to suffer from any type of violence in their life, man or woman. It's not just a woman's cause. Men are violated and have domestic problems too. So anything that sheds light on that, to get it out in the open. Thank you so much. Hi, Cal. Good to talk to you today. Thanks for talking with us. You just finished the uh, Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. Yes. March? Yes. And how was it for you? Was Tough. there any... Tough. Tough. Can I, you tell us about I it? I have uh, not known so much uh, pain in the balls of my feet. Um, yes, it is tough going walking that mile in high-heeled stilettos. Wow, and where did you guys walk? Uh, we did a tour of downtown Modesto. We went all the way along uh, I Street. We got to the farmer's market. From the farmer's market, we turned left up to J Street. Uh, going down J Street was fun. They uh, had a rolling blockade, so there were a lot of cars and a lot of uh, support from uh, drivers who were stopped waiting for us to cross. And then we came down Temp Street and the finish line looked uh, so appealing. I couldn't wait to cross. Okay. What made you come out today? Uh, my wife uh, used to work for Haven Women's Centre and um, she's still a supporter of their work and so am I. And uh, I wanted to come and see how it was doing and it was a great turnout. And uh, I have walked before. So I wanted to uh, see if it was any easier now that I'm older and wiser, and it was no easier. It was just as difficult as last time. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us.
You've been listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and online at kcbpradio.org. This has been Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. We hope you'll catch us next time on Women of the Valley. Thanks for listening. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch.